The Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies presents the Pearl of Great Price Lecture Series, given by Dr. Hugh Nibley. Today's lecture is entitled, The Plurality of Worlds. But now remember, we've been talking about literalism and cosmism and pre-existence in the council in heaven, and all require the existence of other worlds. Now, of all the propositions that ever came forth uh, in discussion of gods and the cosmos and so forth, this has been the most obvious one and the most inviting and also the most hotly denounced and the most hotly resisted, especially in the 17th century. It was the big fight of the 17th century. Is there a plurality of worlds? If you go down the list here, we'll find the arguments for and against and the people for and against it. They're all very famous. They're all, they're all central to our whole civilization here. Nothing is more clearly set forth in the Pearl of Great Price than this teaching. I have all the passages listed here from Moses here and Abraham. Let's read them after we've seen what the opinions were on these things. The, uh, so I'm going to keep score here before plurality of worlds. Uh, four. Four. Well, that's an R. I've got to learn how to write there. Uh, oh, I used to write carefully and very well. And, and this is against. Now, who is against and for this plurality of worlds? Anciently, in the ancient world, from the earliest times, the old records, like the Egyptian and so forth, uh, the absolute rule of the one is the idea. Of course, you have the one king, the one god on his throne. There cannot be two. Uh, swords in a scabbard, there cannot be two suns in the sky. They used to have this, uh, these commonplaces, that there could only be one ruler, an ideal king who sits on the throne, and so there can only be one world, one heaven, or anything else. But <clears throat> what gives him his glory is the hosts that surround him. He's in the midst of great variety and great numbers of the acclaiming hosts, and uh, what about the other worlds going around? Ah, see, the two go together. As soon as you require the God on the throne to have glory, he has to have something to rule over. And this was a very, uh, a very definite concern. How can have God have glory if there's nobody to acclaim him? Of course, many taught that that's why he created the world, so that he would have somebody to cheer him, to make him feel that he'd done something wonderful, because otherwise he was, as, uh, as the foremost French uh, scholar who, who just died in Canada, says he was the uh, Gilson, Etienne Gilson, the French theologian wrote a book with the title of which is God, and he said, God is the self-thinking thinker who thinks only thought. He thinks only of himself, because nothing else is worthy of his thought except himself, of course, to lower himself. So he is the self-thinking thinker who thinks only of thinking. Well, that's, that's the, his ultimate definition for God. But he has to have something more glory than that, you see. So already you have the two, the two sides here, the two ideals. Uh, even in the pyramid text, you know, the one becomes three. Now, Xenophanes, for example, a philosopher of the 5th century B.C., one of the, one of the uh, Miletian school, he says it's quite reasonable to suppose that there are boundless suns and moons and all of the same substance as this earth. So they were preaching that in the 6th century B.C. It was part of the physis, the school of the physical world, uh, teaching of philosophy on the basis of physics, which began in his generation in... Uh, in Miletus, and along with this goes the feeling of pothos. Pothos is an interesting word. Uh, 
Good Thucydides used it very effectively. Photos is the yearning for the beyond, the feeling that there is more there, the desire to get out there. It's funny, when the R Russians gave up the idea of heaven, they become obsessed with uh, this idea of pothos, of, of going out into outer space and forth. The, the hope for reality is beyond. It's natural and inevitably looks to dreams of other worlds. Uh, Burton, well, uh, various articles and uh, books on this subject are citing along here. Uh, now, there are two well-defined uh, approaches, of course, and traditions to the plurality of worlds. The one is the Aristotelian doctrine, who, which is against it. Aristotle is against it. Well, uh, well, first of all, we should mention Xenophanes is for it. Mm. He's all for it. Fifth century. Uh, well, sixth century, actually. Fifth, sixth century. And Aristotle, nothing doing. Fourth century B.C. And why? What was his argument for that? Well, Professor Yeager, in his celebrated work on Aristotle, uh, says... It's very important for Aristotle to prove that only one world is possible. It's very important for him to prove that. Of course, you're going to see the Christian world is going to follow him and so forth. Just as the mind may be focused on only one thing at a time, only one object is most worthy of our total theoria, our contemplation, and that's God. You can't be distracted by anything else. There can only be one, and this applies to everything. Aristotle's one-world theory, quoting a recent study by Munitz, Aristotle's one-world theory with its foundation in the gross facts of familiar experience. After all, you can see there's only one world. And you can see the earth is the center of everything. Everything is drawn to the earth, everything falls to the earth, and so forth. Things that are heavy go down, and so there, there can be no other. This is the center. Man is the center and everything. You can see, by your senses, you can see these stars and the planets revolving around the earth, revolving around the place you stand on. This is the gross, obvious, observational evidence of the senses. Uh, we just found it, yes, made reference to the world beyond our own, both unwarranted and unnecessary. We have enough here. We don't need any other worlds, and they're not necessary, and it's unwarranted. Because this is obviously the center. This is obvious. It's obvious one world. You don't need to go any further and argue about it. Against this you have the intuitive genius, says the same units, of Democritus. Well, Aristotle was against it, but Democritus, remember Democritus, the laughing philosopher, the inventor of atoms and so forth? He's also, he is fifth century. Democritus is uh, for it, and Aristotle's against it. And, hey, we'll have to leave a place in the middle, won't we? Because uh, Plato, you can go either way. Uh, as against the intuitive genius of Democritus, there was no observational evidence whatever that there might be more than one world. You can't observe it that way. The observational range of astronomy at that time had no need for other worlds, he says. Earlier, Plato's reason for looking upon the cosmos as unique, as only one cosmos, is essentially theological. There's only one perfection, and that's it, and you can't have others. So Plato, on one side, was opposed to it. Aristotle's teacher, of course, was Plato. But on the other hand, his doctrine leads to the insistence on, on having uh, more than one world. It was his idea of perfection that led to later Christian and Jewish involvement in plenarism. It's a possible infinity of worlds. If God made the best, he did the best of possible jobs, why would he stop at one? There should be more. That more we crave that, we demand more of a good thing. You can't get too much of a good thing. So why limit it to just one? And it's to Plato they appeal both against and for it. So everybody argues Plato the same way, like, like Professor Shorey and... Uh, and who made Plato a high church liberal and uh, 
and Professor Gifford, who made him a low church, uh, a high church conservative, and made him a low church liberal. That was at Chicago, those two. Both wrote books on what Professor Shorey wrote about on what Plato meant, the absolute opposite of what uh, Gifford and the others said about him. Well, so these are the two well-defined traditions. The issue stated in the now familiar Clementine recognitions. We're always running into the Clementine. Peter is talking, arguing with Simon Magus, who claims to be very scientific, on the side of reality. Peter is on the side of reality, and Simon Magus is against it. So Peter is for it in, in the Clementine recognitions, or uh, way back there, early second century writing, and Simon Magus is, is against it. He's mentioned in the New Testament, you know. Simon Magus. Uh, Simon says that the heaven can only be seen in the mind and therefore cannot be corporeal. You can't have other worlds. Heaven is only something you see in the mind. And Peter, in reply, says he too sees only in his mind when he thinks of an island, which is he's never yet visited. But he says the island's real. It's there just the same. I had a different idea what Caesarea would be like before I ever came here, he said. Though the real Caesarea, when I got here, was quite different. But it was real, the idea being. And then when si Simon challenges him, what do you think is beyond the heavens? Peter replies, I believe in a great source of light that is real and not a mere fantasy, phantasium vanum, nor the product of sophistic assertions, but it is testified by law and by nature. So Plato is being the, uh, Peter is being the scientific, down-to-earth, common sense when he says, of course, there are other worlds, and of course, they're going to be real, uh, things beyond the sun and so forth. And uh, Simon Magus says, no, this must all be spiritual. But of course, Simon's was this was the winner as far as the church was concerned after. So we have the Jewish theories the same way. We have the Zohar. Remember that Zohar, we mentioned that a lot. What does that say? God creates worlds and destroys worlds, and you too will be able to create worlds and to destroy worlds. This was a doctrine common both to the Jews and the Mandaeans. We find it in Ben-Gurion. We find it in, well, an article of mine on Treasures of the Heavens. I go into it. So who will we put here on the, okay, the Zohar? The Zohar is for it, definitely for it. We're going to have to make these lists longer, aren't they? And uh, not only that God creates and destroys worlds as in the Pearl of Great Price, but you too can become a creator of worlds if you follow certain, a certain line. Uh, and uh, the Zohar says, other worlds have, this is an interesting theory, incidentally, other worlds have disappeared, says the Zohar, Zohar, because God did not dwell in their midst regularly and constantly, or as the text reads, because God had not come down to them. They must be visited by God, so they just withered and perished in time and were not visited. There were unworthy worlds that passed away. That's an interesting thing, because they do talk about unworthy races and pre-human races that weren't able to, to, uh, to make the grade. And, uh, of course, we know civilizations and the like do pass away. Well, why shouldn't it happen with worlds, too, in that case? If God hadn't visited them or if they rejected him. So the Jews worked on that. And a very famous work, the Brethren of Basra, the famous uh, edited by Diederichi. I have one of the few copies in existence, I think, of the text of this. It's great. Back in the ninth century at Basra, where all the oil bombing is going on now, it was the Society of the, of the Holy Brethren. And uh, they were scientifically advanced. I mean, they knew all about microbes and molecules and everything else. They have this marvelous encyclopedia. And in it, uh, they say, the business of the angels is to coordinate the operations between the worlds, to keep them all functioning according to the same plan. There are many worlds, and they're all coordinated, and they all work together in one big scheme, which is a very bold concept, which we find in, of course, the Pearl of Great Price. So we'll, we'll say the uh, Akhwan, the, uh, the uh, 
Chase Brethren of Bastrop, but Bastrop may not mean anything. But it was a great school, a very important center, and uh, at an early time, first Christian, then Muslim. The, uh, and this was the doctrine of the Nazarenes, we read in, a, in, a, in the Mina collection here. As the one world school clusters around Aristotle, so the plurality of worlds developed with impressive logic and imagination by the Christian writers who pretend to teach the old Christian gospel of the Gnostics. The Gnostics picked it up because it was very popular, of course. So we'll put Gnostics over here. GN stands for Gnostics. Uh, because they knew they couldn't give it up. It was a teaching of the old church. And yet they weren't inclined to it because they didn't believe in anything physical hereafter. They believed no physical resurrection, no physical creation. God was not worthy of that. So they keep it, some of the sects keep it, and there are many of them, because uh, the Christian tradition demanded it. And uh, this is part of the teaching that went back to the early church. It's attested by a strict contradiction, their favorite doctrines. Then uh, Justin Martyr, the first Christian martyr. Oh, there's one. Justin Martyr, the first Christian martyr. He insists on it, and he's very important. He, remember, he's the first philosopher to become a Christian. He was martyred for that, you see. He never laid off his philosopher's robe, and then he writes apologies, the famous apology of Justin Martyr, telling his philosophy friends in the school why he joined the church, justifying him himself. But he insists that the Christians are not interested in mere abstractions. He says, that's not it. He's, he de they demand reality, he says. He promises the perspective of the Christian as Dame Virtue promised Heracles at the crossroads. Um, he says here, yet there may be other... Oh, what the wrong one? Le uh, he says here, if you follow me, I can promise you unlimited worlds. Adios cosmos, he says. Unlimited worlds. The worlds go on without end, he says. So we'll put Justin Martyr down here. He's a very important one, very early too. As I say, the first Christian martyr, the first, well, after Stephen, remember the first uh, philosopher to join the church. Later, it was only the heretics that still clung to that old belief. And uh, Philastrius is one who collects a lot of, uh, we have him in the 12th volume of the Patrologia, which is over in the ancient studies there. Philastrius, he's in the fourth century. He's an early writer. He collects all the arguments against it for it, you see. The church in his day, as we've seen before, the philosophers of the fourth century rejected it. They didn't like any of this physical stuff at all. And he says, uh, there are heretics who still cling to the old belief, you notice it is the old belief, that worlds are finite, are infinite and innumerable according to the silly opinions of some philosophers, to which he opposes Genesis 1 and 1. This was usually the answer which says, of course, in God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He says, now that says the world is one and from one source, and you can't get around it. There can only be one. So he, and he follows very closely by Methodius, refers back to the cosmologies of the Egyptians and Chaldeans. He argues that if the sun and the moon and other stars are divine and greater than men, then it's necessary that they also contain greater life. There must be worlds greater than our worlds. And he says, uh, uh, greater peace, greater justice, greater virtue, and so forth. Uh, is that reasonable? Well, why not? <laughs> it follows all right, but of course they found it offensive. Uh, so, but he sort of remains on the, on the fence, and a lot of them do. This is interesting. In the early period, there's a good footnote in the Patrologia on that. Um, those who have the glory of God at heart generally like this. They, it put him at the head of the greatest possible show. They wanted God to have the biggest possible universe. And as might be expected, our old friend Oregon, where is he? 
He's stuck right in the middle and he can't make up his mind because remember he knew what the old church taught, but he also, and he was the best of theologians, uh, but he also grew up on the campus, born and raised there, of the University of Alexandria and had to accept both. So he tells us some interesting things here. He says, in his famous work on the first principles of the gospel, which is, on reserve you can get that there, Yet there may be other worlds, but what their nature and number may be, I confess, I do not know. If anyone can show me, I would gladly learn. Now, that was the position of the church at the beginning of the third century. He was born 185, you see, at the end of the second beginning of the third century. So, I don't know, he says, there may be, and I'd like, I wish there was, but can you tell me about it? Notice there's no authority, the tradition is lost, the apostasy has taken place, they don't have anything. And, of course, St. Jerome. He says that Oregon believed that the number of worlds was infinite. He believed it to himself, but he avoided being a follower of Epicurus by having them exist not all at once, but in succession, one after another. So there'd be lots of worlds, but just one at a time. Well, that explains a lot. Remember, Pearl of Great Price says, as one world passes away, another comes into existence. But Oregon's still carrying water on both shoulders here. And uh, Epicurus, though, is one of the classic uh, exponents of it. He belongs in here, of course. You mentioned to him, you said you enjoy yourself, but the idea that there should be other worlds goes along with, with atomism, with uh, Democritus. Putting it on a physical basis, there's no reason why it shouldn't be repeated. Well, uh, and then the Middle Ages. The, well, Phil, better put Philastrius in. Philastrius notes that in his day there was a wide disagreement in the church on the subject. Half the people took one side, half the teachers took the other, so here you are, which way you're going to decide. Now, Scott, Michael Scottus, the famous philosopher of the Middle Ages, he got around this, getting down to the Middle Ages now, by supposing that God could create a plurality of worlds, but that the nature of the world he did create made the existence of other worlds impossible. So, Scott said it's impossible God could have done it. You can't deny him that, you see. So, uh, Michael Scott, there's Scottus, John the Scotsman, and Michael Scottus. This is not Scottus, the less famous Michael Scottus. But the, <clears throat> while some Christian tastes chided Aristotle for limiting God's control to a sphere of life within the circle and the moon, that makes it a very small show, preferring the broader scope of the schools in Babylonia, India, and Egypt who taught that there were other worlds and whose teachings would be hard to refute, that's a, that's a very interesting writing by a, uh, a Palestinian writer in the Oriental Patrologia, also from the 4th century. The Aristotelian concept, taken over by the doctors of the Christians and the Jews nearly in the Middle Ages, it's akin to the doctrine of universal monarchy of sorts. All outside the monarchy are in the, in the outer darkness and have no place at all. There can only be one kingdom. They, they went to work on that. The argument of perfection though works either way. <coughs> the Arab, the Jewish, and the Christian philosophers of the Middle Ages taught that the harmony of all nature requires that there be only one perfect universe. And this was taken as the proof of only one, only one uh, God. So the strong uh, arguments are against it. The whole of medieval philosophy now, both Jewish, Christian, and uh, and uh, Arabic, the Arabs were leading at that time, say, no, you had to have a perfect. The book of the mysteries of heaven and earth has Peter saying to the Lord, nothing was created before heaven and earth. And in spite of Matthew 25, 34, nothing existed before heaven and earth except the three names of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Christian Hermias of the fourth century contrasts the Christian belief in one cosmos with Epicurus' idea of many and infinite worlds, which he says would require many heavens, many ethers, and so forth, and that would be absurd. Now, Augustine, of course, is our 
is our big one, but like Oregon, he's on the fence. He's the most important, but he decides against it in the end. Early, he was a Manichaean, was very strongly for it. And uh, yes, in the City of God, this is past, I just read out of the City of God just last hour. He says, there's no time without mobility. That's a good point. Something has to move in order to measure time. There's no mobility without creatures. <clears throat> there was no time after which God began to create the earth. There was no time after which he began to create. He didn't begin at any time as far as that goes. Uh, then he says, es nihilantifikisa intelligator. That's to be understood that there nothing at all existed before he created this world. Therefore, there can be no other world, he says. Since there was no time, from that we conclude, he says, that nihilantifikisa uh, intelligator. We understand that before this world was created, nothing at all existed. Uh, very interesting thing he says here, non less mundus factus in tempora sed cum tempora. The world was not created in time, but with time. Time and the world were created together. Philip Great Price says time, uh, um, but Adam hacked into a new time system when he left the garden. Before then he was on another time system entirely, but it's still a time system. Well, there was nothing before this world because there was nothing to make time. So here he has, uh, it solved in this argument, but it was only after much wrangling and soul-searching and so forth, because they, they considered this a very important issue. The, uh, it's because the beauty and utility of the heavens are exclusively for the benefit of men. Now, now John Chrysostom rejects it. Augustine uh, rejects it here. Deliver. And John Chrysostom, very important writer of the 4th and 5th century, Golden Mouth. We have many volumes of his writings, and he's the greatest orator of his time, and so forth. A tremendous influence. Well, he rejects it. He says, the beauty and utility of heavens are all exclusively for the benefit of man. This is the point of view of that time. Talk about uh, anthropocentric and so forth. And he rejected the possibility of mother, uh, many heavens. He says, the stars were created first and foremost for the benefit of sailors. That's why he made stars. So there's no reason to go on creating them for anybody else, because there's nobody else there. That was the argument, say, they get feeble as you go along, you know. And then we get to the Middle Ages and Thomas Aquinas, this is all the againsters. He explains why Plato's idea of perfection makes it impossible that there should be more than one world. He says, duplicated worlds would be futile and foolish, why make more? So Aquinas is against this, and he, he reads Plato that way. In the 12th century, Thomas Aquinas. He, uh, says Thomas is against it. Oh, yes, excuse me. Even though their totality might be perfect, still there could only there, there would be imperfect worlds. Reading the whole passage. Duplicate worlds would be futile and foolish, while different worlds would be imperfect worlds, even though their totality might be perfect. That's his commentary on Aristotle, De Kylo, Aristotle on the Heavens. Lecture 19, section 14, etc., etc. So, now in the Renaissance and Reformation, this doctrine emerged again. They settled it from the Middle Ages this way. And did they have a fight about it? This was the big thing. It's the main issue in the Renaissance. The Renaissance is the expansive period. You're going to discover this world and other worlds. And it emerged in the Renaissance and Reformation. It called for countermeasures. The greatest crime of Giordano Bruno, who was its great defender, this is... Uh, he was burnt at the stake in Rome for preaching this doctrine. He's a great genius in many ways. But, uh, and right, right at the beginning, let me see, 1600, the year 1600, right at the turn of the century. 
into, when they go into the 17th century, then it becomes more scientific. And they, but it becomes the main argument of the 17th century. They talk about that, whether it's Pascal or, or uh, Descartes, or the rest, they talk about that more than anything else. Well, uh, Bruno was his teaching, quoting him, decentralized, infinite, and infinitely populous universe. And it cost him his life. He was born. He, he went everywhere. They wouldn't accept him. They threw him out of Geneva. He went to Paris. He went to London. Everywhere he went, he was one of the great geniuses of his time. And uh, this teaching that there was more than one world, this is what cooked his goose, though. And it rested not on the astronomy of Copernicus, as Lovejoy tells us, or Galileo, but on the principle of plenitude. Uh, to, to, for a thing to be perfect, there must be the most possible of it. There must be a full plentiness, so it must be a plenty, plentiful worlds. This book of Lovejoy's, I didn't move along. Yes, I did. Uh, this, I guess we can put on reserve, or you can, it's, it's very good on this subject. Arthur Lovejoy, The Great Chain of Being. He takes it up here in the, in the Renaissance and Reformation. And the other one is Alexander Coiré's book called uh, Coiré. You can get this here. And you can get these at the bookstore quite cheaply. Uh, it's called The... Uh, the Closed, yes. It's, it's called The Closed Universe. The, the closed and the infinite from, from a clo yes from a closed world to an infinite universe is the name of it. It's called the closed world. Uh, it's closed world, but it's it's to the infinite universe. Coiré's book on the closed world. It's a it's a new one and it's it treats the subject again very well. It begins, however, with Nicholas of Kazanis. So we we better have him down here because he's very strong for it. Yes, he comes before Bruno. Cardinal Nicholas was Cousins. He sounds Italian, but he isn't he's German. That's the town of Pise in, in Germany and so forth. Uh, we should have him down here somewhere. Mustn't forget him. His dates, notice, he's way back in the 15th century, 1401 to right at the beginning of the century, to 1462 in that case. The, uh, no, he lived 1464. Yeah, down here. So, but Nicholas of Cusanus, he became a cardinal, Cardinal Nicholas, and traveled everywhere and had great influence uh, with the popes. And uh, he, uh, he um, wrote a famous work called De Doctrina, uh, no, De Ignora, De Docta Ignorantia, on the learned ignorance. He was the most learned man of his time. And he says learning consists entirely of knowing that you don't know. And he, he, he takes as a famous example the squaring of the circle. Well, that's just following Socrates. The squaring of the circle. You you put a square around a circle and then you cut the corners off the square and then you keep cutting those corners off. That can go on forever. You'll never get a square. He says, that's the way of knowledge. You get nearer and nearer, but you'll never get it as far as that goes. Uh, and he picked up the the saying, uh, mundane, I think, that the uh, universe, which they applied to God, that the universe whose center is everywhere and circumference is nowhere. Uh, yes. The God whose center is everywhere and the circumference is nowhere. But he says, that's not God, that's the universe that we're describing. And it certainly is Einstein's universe. Center is everywhere, you know, the exploding universe, about the balloon and all that. Well, uh, Nicholas Cusanus said that there must be of the same nature if an, inferior, if an inferior species of the inhabitants of other stars. The inhabitants of this world are inferior to inhabitants of other stars. That's way to, one way to get into trouble. Uh, who remain wholly unknown to us, he says. But by the early 16th century, now I'm quoting Lovejoy here, by the early 16th century, the theory of plurality of, 
of solar systems and of inhabited planets, of the infinite number of stars and the infinite extent of the universe in space, were already common topics of discussion. By the end of this century, by the end of the 15th century, they go into the 16th century, and these are, this is the common topic of discussion. Was there an infinity of worlds and other worlds, a plurality of solar systems? What most attracted the 17th century was the idea of habitable celestial bodies with creatures more or less like ourselves. This was the big appeal, as Munich says. Lovejoy says this is a truly revolutionary thesis in cosmogony which was generally accepted before the end of the 17th century. By the end of the 17th century they accepted it, well whatever happened to it? It comes in as a, quite a novelty in the Pearl of Great Price. Right. Uh, Wolf Barsh has a phone call, it needs to be taken immediately. Yes. Somebody wants a portrait and they want it in a hurry. <laughs> the, uh, in the middle of the century, Borel published his new discourse pro proving the plurality of worlds, which he called attention to the mountains and rivers on the moon, and recalled that Pythagoras, now we go way back here in the earliest times, he was the great one who was for it, it was Pythagoras. This is for, I can forget it, Pythagoras, who learned it in Egypt, of course. He learned everything in Egypt. Who uh, recalled that uh, Pythagoras called the Earth a moon, and in this century, you have Campanella's famous work. And this is really something. Uh, a famous work known as The City of the Sun, in which he describes the sun as a populated planet. Uh, it was taken very seriously. Lots of people got all excited about it. Campanella, uh, well, he paid for it, though. Uh, he died in the middle of in 1639 after spending 27 years in prison for teaching it. And finally, one of the popes, Gregory VIII, let him out again. But uh, you had to pay through the nose if you taught these things in some parts of the world then. Anywhere, the Protestants were strong against it as the Catholics and so forth. It was a big fight. <clears throat> and he believed the sun inhabited by beings far superior in learning to ourselves. Uh, the Now, Descartes, the, fa the father of modern philosophy, the maker of modern the father of modern thought. Descartes, it begins with modern thought. What position would he take? He was against it. That's a strange thing. He's, the great Descartes belongs over here. Ray Descartes, who, who invented so much and introduced so much in the, of modern thinking, who died right in the middle of the century, 1650, right smack on the line. He says, the question of many worlds is silly and irrelevant. Since this world is infinite, and we must never dispute about the infinite. There's nothing you can say about it. Well, I guess he's on the fence again, isn't he? This matter of the sky and the earth is one and the same, he says. He's talking about the matter we're in here. And there cannot be a plurality of worlds, since it is all a complete self-centered whole. If it's just one perfect whole, you don't divide it up. Well, there's a lot. It is a whole, but can't you have other worlds? And see, this, this is the argument. But he was uh, engaged with that idea, even if the worlds were infinite, he says, it is impossible that they should not be constituted from one and the same matter. Well, we believe that. Of course, we've always taught that. Like unto other worlds, exactly as has been done in other worlds. We keep repeating that formula over and over again, as has been done in other worlds. This is not new. There's nothing new about it as far as substance and structure is concerned. But the combinations are different. There's no end of difference between the worlds. Well, he says, even if worlds were infinite, it's impossible they would not constitute from one and the same matter. Therefore, they cannot be many, but only one, because they're the same matter. Well, in that sense, I agree with him. His argument is that no matter how many there might be, 
all must belong to one and the same system, so after all, it's only one cosmos. The one who treats him as Koire, he goes into quite a bit of detail on him. Now, Pascal, the great genius, inspired genius, came right after him. He, he died quite young, but he invented adding machines and things like that, a mathematical genius. But he couldn't accept it either, uh, the great Blaise Pascal. Uh, this is B. Blaise, and this is René Descartes, so forth. Uh, he couldn't accept it. Well, why not? A great noodle like his. He couldn't accept life on other worlds because of his attachment to the Jewish and Christian tradition. He was very pious, which long since disposed of his earlier competitors, who viewed as absurd the assumption of the existence throughout infinite space of countless other races of rational and presumably sinful beings. He said the Christian and Jewish tradition won't allow it. It's absurd that you don't need, you don't need to go on endlessly repeating things. There's no point to that. And Henry Moore, who is a follower of his, follows the familiar orthodox medieval premise, the center of each of several worlds is a sun with its planets, and these all together, one world I concede, and under that inexhausted God and God is height whose simple goodness makes the highest deity. Well, he's going into ecstasies about the fact there's an infinite number of worlds. That's Henry Moore. Henry Moore. It's M-O-R-E, it's not two O's, it's Henry Moore. Yeah. Well, Henry Moore, he says that. The orthodox medieval premises. These are altogether one world, I conceive, that under the that inexhaustible good God in his height, whose simple goodness makes the highest height. The each several world has its suns and its planets. If Descartes rejects the infinite infinity of inhabited worlds, he nonetheless refuses to suppose that the power of the Creator is so imperfect that no such stars could exist. He, he thinks it's absurd, but he says, you're not going to limit the power of God, so God could make more if he wants. He's sitting on the fence, too, Descartes, with that argument. He could make them if he wanted to, he says. Likewise with Leibniz, the great German philosopher of the time, Pangos, Dr. Pangos, Voltaire. Let's see which side he's on first. Leibniz, you'd expect him to be very much on it. Uh, well... He is against it, of course, because he believed in the best of possible worlds, if you've, if you've read your, your Candide. So that's uh, Leibniz, great Leibniz. Now, we're, we're now in the 18th century. Well, he dies at the beginning of the 18th, about 1717. Leibniz. Leibniz says, no, because God created the best of, this is the best of all perfect worlds. Of course, Voltaire has no end of fun spoofing that. If you call this the best of all perfect worlds, what have you got? That's the whole theme of that of Candide, but he argues like a German philosopher. He's called Pangloss, you see, the, the typical German philosopher. Uh, as Voltaire says, uh, um, petit philologue comme tous les hommes. He's a little philologian like all Germans. Well, he says, uh, Leibniz says, an infinite, immutable, and sempiternal God could not be conceived as limiting his creative action to a small stretch. Well, now, wait a minute. He's going to have it, he has, has to extend his actions out here, and if, he's not, if he can't be conceived as, well, where can he stop creating? This is the contradiction that you run into here all the time. Now, Newton, for example, well, Newton is very strongly for it. Uh, Newton takes us down to 1727. This is a very neat list for making, isn't it? Newton, Sir Isaac. Uh, remember, Newton was very, very religious literally interpreted the Bible, would not go along with any of the theology of his time, the greatest scientist probably who ever lived, and but extremely devout to the end of his days, 
And he speaks in terms strongly reminiscent of the Mandaean and Coptic Brotherhood, as I say him. He says, For in God's house, which is the universe, are many mansions, and he governs them by agents which can pass through the heavens from one mansion to another. For if all places to which we have access are filled with living creatures, why should all these immense spaces of the heavens above the clouds be incapable of inhabitants? No, he just turns around the argument. Why, why bother to create all those things? He says, well, why not? See, why let all that space go to waste and all that matter? Why not organize it? The arguments work both ways. And uh, why should all these immense spaces of heavens above the clouds be incapable of inhabitants? By combining Democritus and Newton, the great Immanuel Kant, the daddy of heavy German philosophy, as you know. Now he, oh, this is not against, for heaven's sake, I'm getting all mixed up here. This is Kant. He wrote, he had the remarkable, he's, uh, his anticipation of the, uh, of the present, uh, of the present cosmology and the, uh, his new sophisticated stuff was the, uh, the beginning of the, uh, he preached about galaxies, island galaxies, and the formation of, uh, of solar systems from, uh, from, uh, spiral nebula and things like that, Laplace's theory. But he went a long ways in his study of the stars, and today they've just barely caught up with him. Uh, some, some books like, uh, like Cortes pay great tribute to Kant for anticipating, not just by intuition but by reason, so much of what we teach today in the, uh, in the new, oh, incidentally, just before him, Athanasius Kircher. Athanasius Kircher was a, was a Jesuit who was into everything, you know. And he could get away with everything. He was the Pope's pet, and he uh, was the first person to decipher, who made some good Coptic studies and thought he had deciphered Egyptian and so forth. Uh, and he was not in trouble until he made this statement. And this destroyed him, practically, when he says. Then he got into real trouble, and he said that it would be in God's power to create similar worlds to ours at various distances from the Earth. And his idea of an inter ecstaticum or travel to the planets produced even among the scientific brotherhood only an uneasy silence as Fletcher. Even the scientists couldn't take that. So Kircher, Athanasius Kircher, went off the deep end with that one. Uh, he was naturally for some lists here. <laughs> We'd better make a division here. Hey, Kircher. He's a, a fascinating character. He never let anything stop him. I mean, he'd come out with the wildest ideas, and some of them were, were good, and that was the point. But, uh, and he could get away with anything he wanted. They, they believed him, until he started saying that it would be in God's power to create similar worlds to this. Well, then, uh, the great Isaac Newton, of course, I mentioned him, who dies in 1727. And he, well, in God's house, he incapable of inhabitants. And then Kant, that's the one we're talking about, Kant concluded that the cosmos must be infinite, quoting him, it must be infinite because of the infinite power of God. It works both ways. Uh, he carried it on to an, an infinite hierarchy of island universes, of spiral nebula and all the rest. He had it all worked out, solar systems and the like. Then, who do we have here? Oh, the famous argument with Richard Bentley and so forth. Uh, this argument was used by Richard Bentley, the famous Richard Bentley, who. Uh, who got into the famous argument with, uh, with Dr. Arnold at Oxford, that celebrated feud that ran on for years and so forth. Richard Bentley, he was a classical scholar, but he had some pretty nutty ideas too. But he says, uh, this is absurd. 
what good would an infinity of worlds do? What indeed could be the usefulness of these innumerable stars that are not even seen by us? If you can't even see a star, what good is it? As if God created all the stars for our particular benefit. Never went any further. And he asks uh, here, this utilitarian doctrine, Leibniz, uh, again, <coughs> this utilitarian doctrine, what good would it do us if there were a lot of other worlds? <laughs> Interesting question, isn't it? It's both materialistic and atheistic, the argument, yet the doctrine of other worlds was opposed on the grounds that it was too materialistic. Indeed, it's been widely assumed among scientists that the discovery of life on other worlds would be an end to belief in God. And this is a very important thing now. I've got some interesting things here. Uh, though Leibniz defined monde, universe, as one of a system of worlds that could exist, but of which only a single one has been effectively realized. You see, So God could have created other worlds, but he only created this one because there's only one perfect world possible, and that would be it. So he said, well, of course, there could be other worlds, and God could do it, but we can't figure it out, so leave it there. It may be hard for the present generation to believe that up to this very time, it was the scientists who contemptuously rejected the idea of plurality of habitable worlds. Uh, while the old tradition lingered, lingered, the doctors had trouble making up their mind. Now, this is the official Roman Catholic position on the subject today, which is rather important. It's in the Revue Biblique, a recent issue. The doctors had trouble making up their minds in the church. They went both ways until the question was settled this way. The whole trouble, according to Grelot here, the whole trouble is that they couldn't get rid of false ideas of localization. There had to be such a thing as place. If there was no place, then they, there'd be no problem. But localization is a physical thing. And forget locus, forget place, forget space, and all that sort of thing. Take it all as spiritual, and you can forget about this other world's business. And that's the present position here. Uh, the, the Bible excels... Oh, this is an, a very interesting statement of, Arthur, of Whitehead. Whitehead's on this side. Oh, incidentally, we put, we put the R.C. Church today on this side, officially. See below. And here on this side, we put uh, Alfred Lord Whitehead, the famous English philosopher and mathematician. His statement, his deathbed statement, is a very interesting one on this subject. And uh, he says, the Bible excels in its suggestions of infinitude. He says, here we are with our finite being and physical senses in the presence of a universe whose possibilities are infinite. And he rises up from his bed and he shakes his head, he says, and even though we may not apprehend them, those infinite possibilities are actualities. Don't reject anything, he says. The Bible's un interpreters, he said, unfortunately, have scaled and whittled down the sense of infinitude into finite unlimited concepts. Uh, this is what they did interpreting the Bible. See, they, well, the things we've been talking about. But the possibilities, we must leave the door open. And this is, of course, the great possibility. The, an astronomer reports here in 1955, this is from Journal, a drama, in 1955, notice how recent, a dramatic reversal in outlook on the subject of life outside the Earth took place. Before then, in my day, because they had the, the pass-by theory, the near-miss theory, it could not happen. The same reasons are used the same way today. The possibility of creating this earth by chance, by the, by the near-miss theory, see a, a, a star came near enough to the sun to pull out so much substance, and that substance it just figures out just right. And in the 1930s, that was the only one that was accepted. And, but then it's junk, and now the new one, of course, is the other one. But now you have the 15 key coordinates that have to be 
fine-tuned and all fine-tuned together, and the possibility of, of another, coming up with another world by chance is infinitesimally small. So this must be the only one. There can't be any other world like this one. And this was argued either way, you see. It was the scientists that opposed it. And, and I, you know, old Professor Larkin would throw you out of the room if you suggest, well, a science fiction nut or uh, something like that would suggest there might be other worlds. Absolutely not to be tolerated for a moment, which is surprising. It, it comes from the, the scientists here. Uh, this astronomer, this is Luton, a writer like Descartes feels that discussion of the question represents the antithesis of real science. See, Descartes said this is not a scientific subject because we can't see those other worlds, we can't study them, so forget it. This is not real science since the same scientists held to one theory of origin of the solar system, well, as they did in 1930s and another theory in 1950s. The collision theory, the origin of the planetary system by a chance pass by, just the right distance, just the right time, just the right place, temperature, speed, and all the rest, was such an extreme rarity that it was all but impossible that it could have been reproduced at all, the only thing that would do it. And in 1960, I'm quoting from another journal in Kadarshev, uh, in certain digests and so forth, 1960, quote, many astronomers will prove conclusively and to their own complete satisfaction that planetary systems are quite common. But for 1960, you couldn't say that safely. I have an interesting reference here, here. Yes, here, in 1964, an astronomer speaking on the subject, is this W. Sullivan, speaking on the subject of a project designed to receive or send messages to other worlds. This was Carl Sagan's pet, you know. He says, quote, this is a subject which we would not have dared to discuss on this kind of platform even as recently as two years ago. So recently they gave up the idea of uh, there may be, you see, contacts and so forth. They wouldn't have dared to discuss it before 1962. Now the inventor, the discoverer of, uh, of radar very largely was Arthur Clarke and he wrote 2001 Odyssey and so forth. He's quite a scientist as you know and uh, he objected to some of the fancies that have been inevitably grown from the acceptance of life's existence elsewhere. He doesn't question the possibility, but like Descartes, he questions whether it would have the, any significance that people have assumed for it. He says, we're quoting your man, will never, quote, conquer space. It will never be possible to converse with anyone on another planet, because of the time lapse. The whole concept of interstellar administration or culture is seen to be an absurdity. Any form of control or administration over other islands in space would be utterly impossible, and all parallels from our own history thus cease to have meaning. But maybe it doesn't take into account, I was reading uh, Nathan Hababli last night, a, a medieval Hebrew traveler of the Middle Ages, and it was common, they, here the great Khan was, in, uh, was administering an empire effectively where you couldn't reach some of the cities and some of the forts and so forth without traveling three and four and five months. And yet they kept the thing organized, so maybe you could get your space empire that way if you're willing to, to sit it out. Well, I see the time's up now. Of course, you can go into overwarp, and that takes care of all that. <laughs> so, has he forgotten the great empire spreading over most of Europe and Asia? The capital was often months or more than a year's journey from its agents and messages from the provincial centers of government. I was reading about the Khazar uh, and the um, Khaibar community of the Jew kingdom of the Jews in central India. Uh, in the 12th century, uh, oh, in the 16th century, they came, they asked for help from Charles V and wanted to help him. And uh, it was a matter of uh, two or three years to reach it. And that's something. Well, we'll, this the next time, and uh, then we'll read the passages from the Pearl of Great Prize, which are very striking on this, this same subject, I think.